Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory, Senior Lecturer in Southeast Asian History at the University of Queensland, Australia, and co-host of this channel. Thailand's one of the world's last remaining military dictatorships and the last in Asia. While we're pretty familiar with the military's frequent interventions in Thai politics, we know rather less about its external security role. As rivalry between the superpowers, the United States and China has grown in recent years, Thailand's strategic position in the East Asian region has become increasingly important. But what do we know about Thailand's strategic culture? That is how the country's security elite, including the military, thinks about war, force and security. This is the subject of Greg Raymond's timely new book, Thai Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation, published by Nias Press in 2018. At a time when the political future of the Thai military, and in particular its controversial relationship with Thailand's monarchy, are under great scrutiny, the subject of this book has implications not only for Thailand, but for the broader region. Today we'll be talking to its author, Dr Greg Raymond, who is a research fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, Canberra. Greg, many thanks for coming on the show and congratulations on the new book. Thanks very much, Patrick. It's uh, great to have an opportunity to come on New Books Network and Southeast Asia Channel. So it's a great product. Before we get on to discussing the book itself, could I start off by asking you to tell us something about how you became personally interested in Southeast Asia, in security studies, and in particular, the subject of Thai military power? Way back in the 90s, I, I did study a Master of Arts in Asian Studies at Monash University in Melbourne. There, my focus was mainly Indonesia, and I wrote a thesis then on human rights thinking in Indonesia. But after that, there was, a, I guess, a 20-year diversion away from academic work, and uh, I became a practitioner of foreign and defence policy by working in Australia's Department of Defence in Canberra for close to two, two decades. But uh, what brought me back to Southeast Asian studies and looking at Thailand in particular was that I was offered a job in the Australian Embassy in Bangkok. Before I started that job, I 
was given one year language training uh, full time at the Australian Defence Force School of Languages in Melbourne. So I came to Thailand, worked there for four years, and over that time commenced a doctorate, which was an opportunity to look more deeply at Thailand and its history, but also to think more about these questions of war and force and security, which uh, I had approached, as I, as I mentioned, as a practitioner in international policy for defence, but had never thought about from an acad academic perspective. So both those things came together and through a doctorate, was able to use language skills and able to focus on Thailand and Southeast Asia. And eventually that's brought me back to being an academic and working at Australian National University. Could I ask you to give the listener a broad overview of what is in the book? The book attempts to answer two research questions and, and a puzzle. The two research questions are simply, does Thailand have a strategic culture? And two, does that strategic culture actually matter? Does it actually influence anything? And then the puzzle is that many commentators on international affairs tend to look at Thailand as being a small power, not a country with significant strategic weight or operational military capability. And that was something I was quite curious about because when you look at the Thai military on paper, when you look at the Thailand on paper, it's the second largest economy in ASEAN. It has very substantial military forces, a very large army, a very well-equipped army. It's the Air Force is rated one of the best in Southeast Asia. So there seemed to be a bit of an anomaly there. And I think that's something that I was able to approach through strategic culture. Now, I should say a little bit about strategic culture and what strategic culture really means. I guess the simplest way would be to say it's the presence of the past in the thinking of the present, if that sort of aphorism makes any sense. And it's a discipline or a research program that really came out of the intellectualization of war and security that occurred in the American security establishment during the Cold War, and particularly in relation to thinking about nuclear war. Many think tanks were set up during that period. One of these was RAND, which was funded by the American Air Force. And one of the papers that they sponsored the writing on was very interesting. It was by a, an academic, uh, Jack Snyder. Now, he was an historian by trade, and he was a little bit unusual in that to that point, most of the work on nuclear war and thinking about how to approach it had been done by mathematicians and game theorists. And they tended to presuppose a kind of universal rationality shared by all sides. And he didn't agree with that approach. And he was of the view that different countries do come to these questions of security with their history influencing their thinking. And he wrote a paper on Soviet Union strategic culture in relation to their approach to nuclear doctrine, nuclear war. And he coined the term strategic culture while writing that paper and came up with the notion that if a policy persists over a long period of time, perhaps it's no longer merely policy, but it's actually something more. It's actually achieved the level of being culture, something which is persistent and, and doesn't change rapidly. This is the starting point of strategic culture. Strategic culture then became something of a platform within the arcane debates of international relations. Now, I don't want to talk about that very much 
here, and it's not really a central part of the book, but strategic cultures got involved in waging wars between those who subscribe to realist approaches and those who subscribe to constructivist approaches and so forth. But really, the book doesn't get into those debates so much as try to understand what might be the patterns of thinking in Thailand's approach to thinking about its security. The book really starts off at an introduction which introduces the reader to strategic culture and to to Thailand as a strategic actor. But then I go into the first two chapters looking at Thailand's strategic culture. And what I do for Thailand is look at it at two distinct levels. And this is not something which is necessary for all countries, but I thought it was appropriate for Thailand. First of all, I look at strategic culture in terms of the myths and symbols which Thai elites have been influenced by in their thinking about questions of Thailand security and war in international affairs. And then a second chapter which looks at strategic culture from the point of view of the organisational culture of the Thai military itself. Because the Thai military is such an important actor within the Thai state, Other models of strategic culture, where the military is simply a tool of the state or a tool of the government, don't really work for Thailand. So that was the reason for choosing a two-level approach to understanding Thailand's strategic culture. Could uh, you just say a little bit more about the empirical side? That is the the main sources that you used in, in writing the book. There's two real ways that people go about doing this. One is to look at the pattern of behavior, the pattern of decision making. But another way is to try and look at symbols and images which are highly important, the kind of uh, myths and symbols which have been influential in the security domain. So having spoken to many Thai officers and looked at Thailand's approach to understanding its own history, it's clear that someone like Chula Longkorn and what he did during his time as king has a pervasive and persistent quality in Thai thinking about Thailand security and something you can find in writing by former diplomats, by former military people. It's also something you find in the defence white papers. But it's not really the case that you know the Thai military has published much about its thinking. In fact, this is one of the reasons uh, which enticed me into focusing on it. So I think it's important, I think, when you're looking at the empirical side of, of strategic culture to look for these narratives and stories which seem to have weight and have influence. So that's the kind of empirical material I drew on in trying to synthesise a view of what the key narratives of Thai strategic culture were. Speaking of those key narratives, Greg, you mentioned two in particular, the fall of the Yutia narrative and the so-called deeds of Jhulalongkorn narrative. Could you explain a little bit more about what you mean by this and their influence on the organisational culture of the Thai military? The deeds of Chulalongkorn narrative relates to Chulalongkorn's reign and two particular incidents which I think have continued salience when Thais think about threats from overseas, when they think about how Thailand can assure itself of its security. Now, one of these events is the 1893 Bak Nam crisis when Thailand was essentially muscled by France. France sent a series of warships up to Jao Prayat. 
In terms of military costs, it was a relatively small conflict, not many lives lost, but in terms of its impact on Thai elite thinking about how they could deal with Western powers, it's an incident which has continued resonance. And it was a shock to the Thais at the time that uh, their adherence to diplomatic norms and international law wasn't really going to prevent a European power determined to coerce. So this was uh, a turning point, I think, for Thailand starting to think about the need for military forces. Then in 1897, Jula Longcorn conducted a trip to Europe. And this is also an episode in Jula Longcorn's life which has continued resonance. This idea that if Thais went out to the world and demonstrated their civility, their uh, adherence to Western norms demonstrated that they were part of a family of nations. This was still a very important part of guaranteeing Thailand's security. And in fact, this line of thought had gone back all the way to Mongkut, who himself had sort of renounced the utility of, of armies where he'd seen the British forces defeat the Burmese very easily. So Essentially, what you have with the deeds of Chula Longkorn narrative is this idea that military force is essential for worst-case scenarios, but diplomacy is still the main way that Thailand should pursue its own security. Later on, I talk about the way in which those ideas became fused and Thailand began to actually see, well, the military actually can play into a diplomatic strategy. But just to go back to the second narrative, the fall of the Utia narrative, when Thailand began to write its history and Prince Damrong wrote the history of the wars with Burma, the way the fall of the Utah in 1767 was told was very interesting. Damrong put a great emphasis on the fact that it had been disunity with the Thai elites that had allowed the Burmese to actually conquer a Utia. He called it a mere raiding party. And this idea that it's internal disunity which can leave Thailand open to external interference, I think, is something which has maintained a position in Thai thinking. Rama VI later talked about the most dangerous enemies are not necessarily those outside, but those inside who may create a conflict then giving the outside powers the opportunity to intervene. So it's this idea that it's the internal insecurity which creates a pretext for external intervention, which became, I think, quite an important part of Thai thinking about security. And I call this the fall of the UTA narrative. Greg, you've spent some time talking about the Dulongkorn period when the modern standing army is founded. In, in 1932, the absolute monarchy is overthrown by the People's Party and Thailand becomes a constitutional monarchy. This is obviously a, a key turning point in Thai history and sections of the military play a leading role in that event. How did the events of 1932 and their aftermath affect the Thai military? I think it's really a, a significant rupture in the development of the Thai military. It's a, it's a very significant turning point. Um, and I think that's for a, you know, a couple of reasons. The development of the Thai military to that point had been quite steady, quite well planned, first under Rama V, then under Rama VI, and then to a, to a limited extent on, under Rama VII. There was a, an undisputed source of authority directing what the Thai military, how it was structured, how, uh, what its budget was, 
what kind of wars it prepared for. Now, all of that really deteriorated after 1932. And this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Thai military became politicised, became a political actor itself. It was no longer a tool of the state. And this was disruptive in two ways. First of all, Thailand after 1932 is in a period of contestation about what are the fundamental principles underpinning the governance of the Thai state. And really, that's a contest which to this day has not really been concluded. And that has led to uncertainty about the role of the military, and it's led to a lack of direction as far as the development of the Thai military. But the other thing is, of course, that the Thai military itself became divided. It became used by different political actors as personal bases of political power. So for most of the 1940s and 1950s, the army becomes people in Songkram's personal political power base and the navy becomes Pretty Panamyong's political power base. So any centralised planning direction of the Thai military is really not at all achievable with that sort of internal fracturing and rivalry between different arms of the services. The long-term effect, of course, has been this habit of mounting coups, and that, I think, has had a very corrosive effect on preparing the Thai military or maximising the Thai military's capacity to undertake conventional military operations. One of the arguments of the book is that really doctrinally, and doctrine's an important part of militaries agreeing on what they're going to they're trying to achieve through their training and their procurement. If you don't have much agreement there, if you have fragmentation there, then that doesn't bode well for preparation for actual contingencies and conflict. Another crucial turning point for the Thai military is the Cold War, and in particular the forging of a new relationship with the United States. Can you talk about how this relationship affected the organisational culture of the Thai military? It's something that I'm probably looking at a a little bit more now with with the current project than in the writing of this book. But just to go back, I, I really adhere to my views when I wrote the book that although contact with the United States and the vast assistance and resources which flowed into the Thai military, I don't see that it significantly changed what the Thai military organisational culture was. And just to give listeners a little bit of an idea, in the book I posit that there's three distinctive characteristics for the Thai military organisational culture, these being royalism, factionalism and army dominance. Although it was American resourcing which allowed people in Songkram to rapidly grow the army, thereby accentuating the army's dominance, which it has maintained until this day, their impact on the way uh, the military related to the monarchy and their impact with regard to the factions within the Thai military was really quite limited in my view. So although it it is a very significant period for the development and expansion of the Thai military, particularly the army, I don't think it really impacted the organisational culture terribly much. The battles 
I guess, that occurred between Priti and, and Peabourne and then later at times between Royalists and Peabourne. The kind of rivalries that were occurring within the Thai state was something that the Americans watched on somewhat aghast, somewhat helplessly. Occasionally, they became unwitting protagonists, for example, when they funded the police during the 1950s and they allowed Pal Sihanon to build a paramilitary force from the police, not knowing that, of course, this was threatening perhaps a position of the army, which ultimately reacted when General Surat Tanarat came to power. He stripped the police of all the semi-military acquisitions, including tanks and warships. The Americans were simply seeking to use Thailand as a bulwark against communism in Southeast Asia, but their capacity to really affect the internal political dynamics of which the Thai military was a key actor, in my view, was fairly limited. Greg, at this point, we'll pause briefly for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about how your book explains the Thai military's frequent political interventions. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're talking with Greg Raymond about his new book, Thai Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation. Greg, you've touched on how the military suffers from what you term operational inefficiency, and you look at a number of case studies in the book, including the the Ban Rong Klao disaster of 1987-88. Can you tell us what you mean by operational inefficiency and what you think are the reasons for it? Ban Rom Glau is a good place to start. If we look at that conflict, which was on the border with Laos, a fairly lengthy conflict between 1987 and 1988, it was a conflict where Thailand essentially had to go to the bargaining table without a strong position. Simply, it had not been able to repulse Lao units from control of a series of hills that were in dispute. Now, leaving aside the the border issues which have led to the dispute, if you look at Thailand in terms of its national power at that point in time, some American political scientists have worked out a series of indices that you can use to measure military power. Thailand really should have prevailed and been in a stronger position at the the end of that conflict. They were the ones uh, in the weaker position at the negotiating table because after several attempts to retake the hills, they just had not been able to succeed. They lost a lot of lives. Official numbers weren't released, but it may have been uh, as much as a 1,000. Why did that happen? Some of the diplomats um, later released their understanding of what had happened and what had gone wrong, and much of it was about intelligence, logistics, and capacity to plan operations. The, The Thai military simply had not been in a good position to understand where its forces were and the best way to plan and undertake an operation against a peer military force. Now, this is something which I think we can term operational inefficiency. That is, on paper, as I mentioned at the beginning, the Thai military is very well funded, but 
the problem with military operations or the development of military capabilities, it takes more than equipment. It takes training and it takes commanders who know how to bring together separate units, bring together multiple units, and it's about coordinating those units across a battle space. Now, that doesn't happen by itself. You need doctrine, you need training, and you need the equipment all in the right place at the right time to be successful. So the Thai military forces, while on a unit basis, they've proven they can be significant fighting qualities, demonstrate significant fighting qualities, and and Thai military units deployed as part of American coalition operations in Vietnam and Korea have certainly demonstrated this. But what's happened on the home front when Thai military commanders have been required to command full-scale operations over a larger battle space, they haven't done it too well. Later in the book, you turn to discuss the issue of the defence budget and military procurement. And uh, it might surprise some readers to know that the military's frequent political interventions haven't resulted in constantly high defence spending. And in fact, there's one table in the book which shows that the military's share of the national budget now is somewhat less than it was in the year 2000. I was wondering if you could explain this. I try to explain the the spending from the point of view of the influence of strategic culture. And I guess what I come up with is that um, there there are downward pressures and upward pressures. Now, the downward pressure is those strategic culture narratives which really see the military as a last line of defense when everything else has not worked. You have a military to try and raise the costs to any adversary who might have uh, unkind designs on your country. So it's not a view which necessitates a huge amount of military spending. So what I found is that looking at the way Thailand had handled security crises, for example, when it had Vietnamese forces on its border from 1979 to 1989 on the border of Cambodia and Thailand, sometimes crossing over the border, shelling over the border, Thailand was disturbed, very concerned about what that might mean. But when they modelled what it would take for the Thai military to independently repel a Vietnamese invasion, they decided they didn't want to spend that level of money. So Thailand's often decided to rely on its diplomacy, to rely on its relationship with allies, such as the United States, or in fact, with China in in the case of the Vietnam occupation of Cambodia, and not to develop Thai military capability to to very high levels. And that, to some extent, has meant that their approach to spending on the Thai military has been somewhat restrained. Also, after the 1997 financial crisis, Thailand slashed the budget, the military acquiesced in that, and spending on the Thai military remained low for a very long time. In fact, lower and longer than comparable countries such as Malaysia. So there is amongst Thai elites at times a preparedness to accept low military spending. And I think that is because of this reliance on diplomacy and also reliance on national unity. Some of the surveys done in the 1980s showed that Thais thought that national unity was more important than spending more money on the military. So that's a sort of a downward pressure. But of course, coups, when they do occur, do almost inevitably see a rise in military spending. And I think, you know, that's for a couple of reasons. I think sometimes, certainly during the people in Songkram era, Songkram was, people was directing resources to his political power base. 
But I think perhaps it's more defensible in, in some of the more recent examples of increased spending. And that is simply because with the cost of military equipment, the cost of replacing it, the cost of maintaining it, there actually is a need for constant increases in defence spending. If you're not increasing the defence budget because of the increase in the costs of military equipment, you're going backwards. So it's not surprising that perhaps after military coups that you see an increase in spending. The unfortunate thing is there's not enough trust between civilians, but governments and the Thai military to discuss these questions of a proper basis for funding of the military, that it happens in these spikes rather than in a very planned and controlled way. Greg, this leads us on really to to the next question, which is about the organisational culture of the Thai military, which seems to see it so willing to intervene in Thailand's politics. I think by one count, there's been 19 coup d'etats since 1932. How does your book relate the issue of the military's organisational culture to military intervention? With the question of the Thai military and interventions in politics, you can't look solely at the Thai military. I think there are questions, as I said, earlier about the governance of the Thai state, which are are not settled to this day. But on the other hand, you also need to look at what are the drivers. And I think factionalism and and royalism both have a place in uh, impelling the Thai military to intervene. When a faction mounts a coup and then places its people into the plum positions within the military, that often disadvantages the other factions and provides a sense of grievance such that the faction which was dispossessed, so to speak, might actually at a later point want to mount its own coup. And that certainly happened during the 60s and 70s and the 80s. Now, perhaps we're seeing less of that now, and I think the coups are much more about what is this proper basis of the the Thai state. But at the same time, factions still play a part. And General Brayut came from a unit-based faction, that is the uh, the Eastern Tigers or the Queen's Guard, and they've been in the ascendancy compared to the King's Guard or the Wong Te Wan faction since that time. But royalism, of course, is also very important because, and this feeds into these broader questions of the Thai state, the Thai military it must be said, has had a changing relationship with the with the monarchy. It was originally founded as a royal bodyguard, but then after 1932, the military actually became an active rival to the monarchy for a period of two decades and a half. And then after 1957, when Sarit Tanara launched the restoration of the monarchy, then the two entered into a sort of a partnership, which I think has become more and more institutionalised, and particularly over the period of Rama Nine, Bobby Pond's reign, the monarchy became the stronger partner in that relationship. It's been a transactional relationship at times, though, because the military wants to use the monarchy as a way of legitimising its interventions into politics. This is something which I think has also allowed the Thai military to conduct coups by saying it is doing it to support the monarchy or to protect the monarchy. And I think in the most recent coup in 2014, although this wasn't overtly stated, it was, at least in the first couple of years after the 2014 coup, understood amongst many in Thailand that 
the Thai military was playing a role in shepherding the royal transition. So the royalism, I think, is a, is a factor, certainly. When you think about figures like Brem Tinasunalon, the president of the Privy Council, making statements like, if you look at the military, the monarchy and uh, civilian governments, well, if the military is a horse, civilian government's merely a jockey, and the owner of the horse is the monarch. And that encapsulation of the relationship doesn't bode well for civilian governments maintaining a high level of control over the military. Greg, I, I hope I don't get you into trouble here, but you've raised the issue yourself, the relationship with the monarchy. You seem to see this relationship as being at the heart of many of the problems that you identify with the uh, the Thai military. It's political interventions, it's operational inefficiency, and even, even Thailand's relatively limited strategic influence. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on this? The relationship is part of a, a broader question, though, of how should the Thai state be governed? What, what does a constitutional monarchy mean? And I think in Thailand, it's reasonable to say that there's been more emphasis on the monarchy part than on the constitutional part of that concept. For example, in certain situations, it's the barami of the monarch, which is more important than the gotmai, the law of, of the constitution, the ratatamanun. And this goes to the issue of what are the sources of political authority in Thailand and I think those who try to apply a, a sort of Weberian analysis where you look at uh, charismatic authority and you look at uh, bureaucratic legal authority, I think at times it's certainly true that it's been the role of the monarch at the apex of an ontological system, a distillation of virtue, which has been more important than the constitution and the, the rule of law. Now, that doesn't go on all the time, but I think at certain crisis points it has. And certainly the Thai military subscribes to that model. In fact, this model, in some senses, is one that is consistent with the Thai worldview. And I think, you know, an author that's um, explained this quite well is uh, Serhat Gunaldi in his book on working towards the monarchy. So while we might say this is it's a problem that is constituted by the, the relationship between the military and the monarchy, in a sense, the military is only one component of that broader concept of the relationship between politicians and, and the monarchy or the Thai people and the monarchy, in which perhaps rule of law is suspended at, at, at certain periods or it enables a suspension of the rule of law and the, the, the abrogation of constitutions to, be, to, to happen uh, with relative impunity, let's say. So I think that you know, the military sometimes uses that uncertainty to its own advantage and it's undoubtedly the case that certain coup makers have used this discourse to improve their own position in terms of access to resources and so forth. But at the same time, these larger questions of the governance of Thailand are very deeply intermeshed with the relationship between the military and the monarchy. Certainly, there's a very powerful, strong emotional relationship between many members of the military and the monarchy. One of the rituals which always remains in my mind from my time in Thailand was if any member of the Thai military, if any member of their family passed away, they were entitled to have a funeral where a flame was brought from the king's own temple to that cremation pyre. And that link, uh, very palpable link 
to the monarchy is something which, of course, fosters a lot of devotion and fervour. At the same time, there is a transactional element that I think is also in place as well. I know you're looking closely at Thailand's election, and it's, it's quite interesting, I think, for the first time that I can remember, the issue of reforming the military has come up uh, in the election campaign. Uh, the future Ford Party were the first to raise the issue, and then other parties, I think Puatai and even the Democrats, uh, have also touched on this issue. So they're talking about, for example, bringing the military more securely under civilian control, prosecuting officers who carry out military coups, reducing the number of generals, introducing uh, more transparency into the budget and ending conscription. Just given your understanding of the military, including its its organisational culture, do you think this is possible? And if so, how can it be achieved? I think it is possible, but it's going to take building trust between civilian politicians and the military. And that's a journey which is going to be quite a long one. If we think about the events of 2010 and the way in which Bangkok was turned into something of a battleground, both sides were using heavy weapons. The Red Shirts had paramilitaries operating amongst them. That level of internal insecurity, I think, has severely damaged relations between all parties. And I think it's going to take a moderate approach to military reform to build trust so that these conversations can take place. When I interviewed a number of military generals who'd travelled abroad, seen the relationships that can exist between civilian politicians and military officers in countries where there's strong civil military control, they're, they're amazed, they're impressed. In Thailand, there's been a real reluctance to talk across that divide. And so the only really serious attempt at military reform which I noticed Appasit is talking up now, was done by the Chuan Ligpai government. And he worked quite closely with Suryut Julanon to try to reduce the size of the army and also to bring in new command arrangements. In the end, none of that was successful. I think a lot of it was blown off course by the Asian financial crisis, but it was the closest Thailand's got to in the modern era, having a rational serious conversation about what the force structure of the Thai military should be, what its role should be. Now, the current discussion is positive, and I think all countries need to have discussion about what a proper level of resourcing is and what the role should be of their military, but uh, it's going to take some time. Now, at the moment, the way the military is reacted by talking about Nakpendin, the, the song which was sung by the paramilitaries as they ransacked and massacred students on the campus of Tamasat University in 1976. That doesn't bode well, doesn't speak to a lot of trust, and it's going to take time for that to build. But I think there is an appetite now within the Thai public for more of these discussions to take place. And, and conscription is obviously a good place to start. Essentially, Thailand's had almost the same conscription system for over 100 years. I mean, conscription was first introduced on a large scale in 1902, and the same system has been in place for at least five or six decades. And at the moment, it's getting hugely bad press. It's rife with abuse and brutalisation. Many recruits have been beaten, some to death. And there are real questions about its impact on Thai society. It does impact poorer rural families 
to a greater degree simply because they have fewer methods uh, by which they can suspend or avoid military conscription. So this really does need serious consideration. It needs a, a review which has consultation with the public of the sort that um, perhaps Anand Banyarachon led in relation to the southern Thailand conflict. But uh, at the moment, with trust at very low levels, it's difficult to see that happening. So let's see what happens. I think the Democrats are right when they actually say that they have the best track record so far in trying to reform the military. Poor Thai, and particularly under Thaksin Shinawat, didn't do so much. Thaksin in particular simply tried to rig the appointment system by placing people that he knew into key positions. And and that eventually, uh, I think, was counterproductive in that he led to increased distrust. Finally, one point your book touches on is how Thailand's strategic culture may be affected by a rising China and increasing uh, rivalry with the US for hegemony in East Asia. Some scholars suggest that Thailand's military may be leaning more towards China. What's your view? That's a question which um, the book that I'm working on currently with John Blacksland really tackles head on. Thailand, in a sense, believes and Thai elites actually believe that the strategic culture, the, the diplomatic culture, which emerged during the Chulalongkorn era, is one that suits them well for managing this more multipolar world that we now are entering. So they believe that this idea of maintaining good relations with as many major powers as possible has worked in the past and should work in the future. So Thailand will want to maintain strong strategic relations, a strong alliance with the United States at the same time that it's quite happy to increase, strengthen its security relationship with China. But the relationship with China is quite a complex and multifaceted relationship, as I'm finding out through some of my current research. And I think there's a lot of different elements to it. The memory of, of China as a friend is a, is a very interesting one. And the current book I'm working on looks very much at how certain memories have been preserved and certain memories have been buried. The, uh, the memory of China as a threat during the 1950s uh, as a supporter of the Thai Communist Party is something which has sort of been airbrushed out of Thai thinking today. On the other hand, a lot is made of King Daksin, who helped the Thais repel the Burmese after the invasion of Ayutthaya. I'm interested now to see that uh, at the new Icon Siam shopping centre, there's a whole museum devoted to King Daksin and much made of him being a Doju uh, Chinese. So the relationship's complex. The role in which um, Sino-Thais have played in that relationship is also something which needs to be to be thought through. But where I would come back to in relation to Thai strategic culture, even Thaksin Shinawat, when he spoke to Thai military officers at the National Defence College, always said, look, I follow the example of Chula Longkorn. He was able to juggle these relationships with multiple great powers and preserve Thailand's security. So this is something which I think is this Chula Longkorn narrative um, is deeply instilled and Thai elites have said they think you know, the time is right for that Saran Rom diplomacy. 
The new research project sounds as uh, fascinating as was the last one that uh, has appeared in this book. Greg Raymond, thank you very much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss your new book, Time Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation. Thanks, Patrick. It's been a pleasure. And you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also enjoy listening to Lee Morgan Besser talk about his book, Behind the Facade, Elections Under Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, or to Shane Strate on his book, The Lost Territories, Thailand's History of National Humiliation. You can download or stream these interviews and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Hey, thank I see you at the chin